Block AC, how we doing tonight? Come on, there we go. Let's go. Hey, y'all, like Scott said, my name is Nick. Uh, I look forward to Thursdays every single week, getting to come and hang out with y'all. Just it, It's a highlight of every single one of my weeks. And I want to talk about something tonight uh, that has really been on my mind a lot. And that's that so many people these days have food allergies. And I just really don't get it. And I know it sounds like a really bad start to a stand-up routine, but just bear with me for like one moment, okay? So I have multiple friends, maybe some of you are here today, who have like they're dairy-free or they're gluten-free. And honestly, it doesn't really sound like freedom at all. It just kind of sounds bad. But genuinely, it's a big deal, right? Like it causes a lot of pain and convenience and hurt for my friends that have these food allergies. Uh, the issue is, though, that if you ask me if I have a food allergy, I'll probably, if I don't think about it, say no, even though I 100% do have food allergies. I just don't think about it. Uh, so I'm allergic to watermelon and cantaloupe and celery, and they make my ears itch. And you guys are probably thinking, that is not a big deal at all, Nick. Like, some people have to go their entire life without drinking any dairy products or without eating bread. And you're right, those allergies of mine are kind of small, and they're pretty tame, but that is, uh, that's nothing compared to my big allergy, which is guava. Uh, guava for the, guava, all right, guava, for those of you who don't know, it's a fruit. There it is, there it is. Y'all, guava is a fruit, and honestly, it makes great juice. Right, like it's a phenomenal thing. It grows in Southeast Asia. Let me tell you guys a little bit about how I found out, though, that I am allergic to guava. So I traveled. Okay, uh, I traveled for my previous job, and my first trip was to the Philippines. Sounds really cool, right? And they had them in this awesome hotel. It was really cool. And I wake up at 5 a.m. because I am jet lagged like crazy. And I go for a walk on the beach in the morning. And I read my Bible. And I sit down to this amazing breakfast. They've got eggs, sausage, bacon, uh, and this like bagels that were amazing. And uh, this pink juice. And I didn't know what it was. But I think, man, this is going to taste pretty good. Thanks, Scott. I don't know what this juice is, but I'm loving it. Big juice guy right here. Uh, a couple hours later, though, I start to feel awful. Like, not just bad, awful. So much so that I have to leave the work conference and go lay on the floor of my hotel bathroom. And I am just, sorry if this is graphic, I am vomiting my guts out. Like, I cannot hold anything in. And that happens for about three hours until 2 p.m. When I start to feel suddenly really good. And I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. I don't know what that's about. So uh, next day, rinse and repeat. I wake up real early, go on a walk on the beach, read my Bible, and drink some more of this amazing pink juice. Doesn't occur to me what's happening, right? You'd think it would. Around 11 o'clock a.m., I get really sick. 2 p.m., I feel better. The next day, I do it again. I just, I'm not putting two and two together. I was a microbiology pre-med major. I have no clue what was going through my mind. In all my defense, I was very jet-lagged. I had just traveled across the world for the first time, and uh, I get sick that third day, and something starts to click in my mind. Like, huh, this is weird. I'm getting sick, and then I'm feeling better after I throw up. And so I think finally to call my mom, who's a healthcare professional, and say, Mom, what exactly is going on with me? And she's like, well, what are you eating? And I'm like, nothing strange. Eggs, bacon, toast, bagels. Oh, yeah, and this stuff called guava juice. Silence on the phone for a moment. Nick, there's a lot of adults 
who have an intolerance to guava. I'm like, oh, well, that's good to know. No one told me this because no one really knows what guava is here. And honestly, I wish I could say that the story stopped there, but it didn't. You guys are going to just absolutely berate me for this. Several weeks go by. I'm in my next country, and I am thinking to myself, man, you know what tastes really good? Guava juice. (laughs) And I'm beginning to ask myself, maybe I'm not really allergic to it. Maybe it was something else. And so I walk to the store. I get a container of the stuff. I walk home, pour myself a nice tall glass, drink it down, and get violently sick. (laughs) It doesn't even stop there, though. I tried this mixed fruit juice. I did not read the ingredients. I go and I pour myself a glass and I drink it. I get really sick. I look on the back and there's that pink and green demon fruit that just loves to hate me, but I love to love, right? Like, and now I don't feel bad for my friends if they normally eat food that they're allergic to. And so I do not expect you to feel bad for me. In fact, you're probably thinking, Nick, what on earth is wrong with you? Stop drinking guava juice. Uh, The issue is, though, that I believe the lie that because guava tastes good, it's good for me. And because there's not going to be any consequences for my actions. Uh, Even worse, though, there could be long-term health issues if I continue to drink guava juice and then throw it back up. Like, that could long-term damage my body if I continue to do this. And that brings us to what we're actually talking about tonight, is not food allergies. But there is something in all of our lives that we think it tastes good. Right? But it's really a lie, and there's these unexpected consequences that make our life miserable. And, and so often, we don't see the connection between our thoughts and actions or behaviors and the emptiness or pain that we feel inside. And so we're going to continue our Second Timothy series, which is a letter from a mentor, Paul, to Timothy. And so Paul was a man who he went from hating followers of Jesus and persecuting the church to being a missionary for Jesus and planting churches. Pretty dramatic change. And at the end of his life, he's writing this letter to his mentee, Timothy, and he's encouraging him as in his final words. And so last week, Jack talked to us about the fact that Timothy was encouraged by Paul to know the truth, follow the truth, and share the truth. And so today, we're going to talk about how do we practically do this? Because Paul is going to be giving Timothy some really difficult and painful consequences for the choices that people are going to make. And he's saying, these are lies that people are believing, and I want you to lovingly instruct them about the choices that they're making. Just like my mom lovingly instructed me to stop drinking guava juice, right? Like, we need these reminders. And Paul is giving this to Timothy, and Timothy is then supposed to pass it on to everyone else. And so tonight we're talking about sin, and if you're not familiar with the idea of sin, it's defined as any attitude, thought, or action that goes against God's design for our lives. And it is always bad, straight up. Because God is the source of all good in the entire world, and so often, though, we choose to go our own way. Because I think, man, it just it seems good, right? Like, it feels good. I can do what I want. But sin has these lasting consequences and long-term damage that it brings about in our lives. Listen to how sin is described in the Bible. Pleasurable, but only for a short time. Deceptive, lying, something that hardens our hearts. It's described as a predator that's crouching at the door, waiting to consume us. And finally, the Bible says that sin leads to death. And so tonight we're going to talk about five deadly sins of young adults. Uh, My team and I went through this list of 18 that Paul had given Timothy, and we chose five that we thought these are the most practical, these are the most relevant for people in our age group. And we're going to look at the lies, the sin cells, 
or why it might taste good, if you will, uh, the danger of that sin and why Paul is warning Timothy and then gives some practicals of how to fight sin. And before that, we do that, though, before we hop in, I want to say that this is probably going to be somewhat of a sobering talk. It's probably going to be somewhat serious, but it is done just out of love. Like, the block really is helping young adults uh, build their life on what counts. Like, that is what we stand for. That's why we started it. That's what we want for people, is we want you to be able to experience the fullness of life that God has to offer. And sin will always take you away from that. And so, if you're here tonight and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to be very clear. This is not a behavioral modification talk. I am not asking you to go out of here and clean up your life, and I also do not want you to leave here feeling guilty or attacked, but rather I want you to see the freedom and the life and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the goal here is that because we have been cleansed by Christ, we have a new life. The Bible says this metaphor that if we've been cleansed, then we need to put on the new clothes of our new behavior and new thoughts. Because think about this, if you're working out in the yard, right, like it is swelteringly hot outside these days. And if you go out and you work in your yard all day and you're covered in sweat and sawdust and grass and mud and whatever else that you've been working out in, and then you go hop in the shower, it would be crazy to put on the same dirty clothes. Like some people were just like, oh, that sounds disgusting. Right? Like why would you put the same clothes back on? And in the same way as believers in Jesus, if we've been cleansed, we don't put on the same behaviors that we used to live. We live differently because we have been made new. And so again, that's the goal of this talk. It's not to make people feel guilty. It's not to make people feel condemned. It's to show people that there's freedom and transformation in Christ. And so I want you guys to ask yourself, as we're going through this, ask yourself the question, is this me? Do I experience the consequences of these sins? Or do I believe the lies that this sin is selling me? I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. Uh, God, I, I, just, I thank you for tonight. I pray that you would help me speak clearly as I should. I want to proclaim your word and your love and your good news uh, to everyone here. And so, God, I need you every single day. I'm grateful for you and the way that you love me. Uh, God, I pray that all of us would just have self-honesty with you. God, that we'd be able to look in the mirror of your word and think, is this me? God, I, I believe that you want to do some big things tonight. God, I believe that you want to lovingly show us our sin. I believe that you want to lovingly call people to follow you for the first time. And so I'm going to trust that you will do that, God, that you will do the work of everything that needs to take place tonight. And I pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so starting off, we are going to read 2 Timothy 3.1. It says, but understand this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul continues, and this is the list of the sins that he's warning Timothy about. It says, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, gossips, without self-control, savage, opposed to what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, loving pleasure rather than loving God. It's a long list there, and like I said, we're just going to take a look at five of those. And the first one we're going to start with is being irreconcilable or being unforgiving. Uh, honestly, we're probably gonna need a lot of definitions for these things, because they might not always be words that we use in common day speech. And also, every single one of these probably could have its own standalone talk. So just know that we're not gonna be able to cover everything in depth with each one of these areas as we'd like to, uh, but we just wanna, we wanna raise the awareness that God can work in our hearts as a result of getting to see the lies that these sins are selling. Uh, so 
without further ado, here's a definition of being unforgiving, also known as bitterness, irreconcilable unforgiveness. And the definition is just holding on to anger or bitterness towards someone uh, for something done to you. And so why is Paul warning Timothy about this? So in Paul's day, forgiveness was not really a thing. Like the closest idea in that day was writing off someone's wrongs within a power structure. And if you're wondering what that means, uh, a, let's say a commoner messed up a project. Let's say he stole something. Let's say he just, in general, um, did something that frustrated or angered someone higher in authority. They would have to go to that authority and beg to be let off the hook. And the person who had the power could basically say, eh, I don't really feel like it. Or, yeah, I might do that, but there's going to be some strings attached. And so normally there was strings attached if there was any kind of writing off of wrongs. But y'all, Timothy is being trained by Paul of how to lead a church. And that means that this church is following Jesus. And so they need to love each other as equals. Which means that there's no power structure within the body of Christ. So then they're trying to figure out, okay, I need to learn to be forgiving. Because people interacting with each other are going to hurt each other. That's just a fact of life. And that brings us to the lie that being unforgiving sells. That I need to hold on to bitterness or anger so that I can feel power over someone who hurt me. And maybe it's to protect yourself, like maybe it's to get back at the person who hurt you, but I need to be in the right, I need to be in control, I need to have the power because of what someone else did to me. And now, there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to forgiveness. There really are. And many of you, candidly, have been very hurt in very real ways like, in things that have happened in very deep and painful ways. And so if I just got up here and I just said, hey, you just need to forgive and forget. You're thinking, how could I ever forgive or forget what they've done to me? Or if I was just like, hey, just pretend like it's not a big deal. We all know that minimizing the hurt that's been done to us, that's so, that's so invalidating to the pain. And these are real things that have happened to people. And so what forgiveness is, is it's not minimizing and it's not forgetting. But then the question is, like, what is it? And if we don't have that correct view of forgiveness, we end up holding on to our bitterness. And that's the danger, y'all. Because the lie tells us that we need to hold on to forgiveness, or, or hold on, withhold forgiveness, and hold on to our bitterness to stay safe and maintain power. But the reality is, is that bitterness is a poison. And we drink it, and I'm sure you've heard this, and we expect someone else to suffer. And you just, I'm, I'm sure if you've been there, you just get angrier and angrier whenever you think about that person that hurts you and what they did. But nothing ever happens in the situation, right? It never gets better. And just, you get angrier and angrier, and it starts to tear you up inside, and you end up suffering so much more than the person who hurts you. And that is the lie that unforgiveness sells. God says in his word in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root causes up to, uh, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Y'all says defile many. Like the person who hurts you probably will not feel the result of your bitterness. But everyone else in your life, including you, will. And if you don't deal with bitterness, you'll end up lashing out at the other people around you or you'll pull away and you won't have the depth of friendships that you can have or relationships, and you end up starting to feel alone. Like, maybe someone hurts you in romance. 
Maybe you pushed boundaries farther than you wanted to, and someone pushed you into doing something that you were uncomfortable with. Maybe it was emotionally, maybe it was physically, or maybe you gave your virginity to someone, and then they left you, and you got really hurt by that. It makes sense, because that is hurtful. That's painful. But then you go into another relationship, and you haven't dealt with that bitterness, and you start to think, on the surface, man, it's going to be different, because it's a different person. But the poison stays in here. It doesn't stay with the person that hurts you. Or maybe it's parenting. Maybe your parents weren't around when you were a kid, and that hurts. Or maybe they did something, they belittled you, or they abused you in some way, and you're just like, man, when I have kids, I want to be so different. But then when you have kids, you parent out of anger and fear and bitterness, trying to overcorrect on your parents' wrongs rather than love and compassion for your children. Because we never deal with the bitterness that's inside. Maybe it's friends, maybe it's workplace, I don't know. Like, I don't know what it is. And I'm not saying, again, that your hurt is invalidated or it did not happen to you. But Jesus had these radical teachings on forgiveness that we have to pay attention to because bitterness is a poison. Listen to this quick story of Jesus and his disciples. It says that Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, the religious customs of the day, the religious leaders said what you had to do was forgive two or three times. And so Peter, he's a little headstrong, he's a little reckless, he's feeling good about himself. He comes in, he's like, I'm going to double that. Oh, wow. A little headstrong and reckless. He's going to double that. And he's feeling pretty good about himself. And then Jesus blows him away and he says this. And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Could you imagine forgiving someone 77 times for hurting you? Like, why on earth would you continue to allow that person to be a part of your life? And and there's a caveat here. Like, if there is someone who's abusive towards you, like, I am not saying go be their best friend. Probably some space in that situation is going to be very beneficial. But if there is someone that you have a hurt that can be reconciled with, that is what Jesus is saying. If you're wondering, like, how on earth is this possible? First of all, without Jesus, it's not. It is not possible without Jesus. Because we have to realize that God has forgiven us if we are a follower of Jesus. And you know that God will either take care of justice towards the person who hurt you, and they'll pay for their sins, or he'll forgive and cleanse them, just like the way that he's done with us. And so if we hold on to that bitterness, though, we're saying, God, you're not enough. God, either you're not just or you're not forgiving. And that's what we say when we hold on to forgiveness or when we hold on to bitterness and we don't forgive. Practically, if you want some practicals to do this, uh, go home, make a note, and just write out a list of names and hurts that you hold on to the ones that you just can't quite get over, and just release them to God. And say, God, I'm going to trust you to take care of this situation, but I'm going to let go of my bitterness or my pain towards this person. And then you choose one of those names, just one to start, and you go and you seek reconciliation. And get this, you go up to them and you say, I've been holding bitterness against you. Will you forgive me? And then you say, this is what you did that hurt me. And you try to reconcile the situation. And if it does, and if they ask for forgiveness, and you're able to forgive each other, you have won that relationship back. And let me tell you, from personal experience, those are my closest relationships to this day. 
or the ones that I have gone through the pain of conflict and hurt, but done the work of forgiveness and reconciliation because it builds back stronger than it ever was before. Because you start to realize that the relationship isn't gonna fall apart at the first sign of danger. And you're gonna have a strong relationship, which is exactly the lie that bitterness sells, is that you won't have power, but if you forgive, you'll actually have stronger and more powerful relationships in the long run. It really is amazing. And that actually leads us to our next deadly sin. It comes from being unforgiving oftentimes, and it's gossip or slander. And this is the, uh, I don't know if you guys hear this in your office place. It's, can you believe what Audrey did? Like the office chatter, you know? It's like, man, Audrey is just the worst. She never responds to my emails on time, and honestly, she's just weird. I don't like Audrey. I don't work with a person named Audrey, for the record. There is no person that I have in mind with this. Uh, or hey, let's say you're hanging with your buddies, and you're just talking about Tyler, right? And you're like, man, Tyler, he's not a good dude. He, just, he always bails on us. He is always hanging out with his girlfriend rather than hanging out with us. I don't even think he's Furta anymore. <laughs> or maybe you're hanging out with your family, right? And your dad's late, and you're talking to the rest of your family saying, man, dad is always late. He's the worst. Or man, mom never really cares about my issues. She doesn't listen. And you just sit there and you talk about them. And this is the definition of gossip. It's spreading information about other people that is not beneficial to their reputation, true or otherwise. And this is really big now on social media and news cycles. In Paul and Timothy's day, it was actually so bad that people were going from house to house just trying to find gossip. Like they were going to a house saying, what gossip do you have? And they would go and spread it to the next house. And that's why Paul is warning Timothy about this. The lie, though, that gossip sells us is that it feels good because I'm venting, right? Like I'm just getting stuff off my chest. Or it feels good because it makes me feel like I'm doing something for a situation. Because if I can warn people that Audrey's the worst, then they don't have to deal with Audrey either, right? And we start to believe that. Or we justify it by saying, hey, everything I said was true. It might have been true, but was it helpful? Was it beneficial? See, in reality, the danger is that we're only causing division and destroying relationships with others. God says in his word that a perverse person spreads dissension and a gossip separates, listen to this, the closest friends. He says elsewhere, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels and they have gone down into the person's innermost being. Y'all, gossip sounds real good. It's tasty, right? Like you want the tea. But it goes down deep into your heart, and it can separate the closest of friendships. And it might feel like venting, but it only causes division, and it will destroy relationships. And what if instead of gossiping about someone, what if you went to that person and you just talked to them about it? You said, Audrey, I think we're having a miscommunication. Can we talk about this? Or, hey, Tyler, man, I miss you. Why don't you ever hang out with the boys anymore? Can we talk about this? Or, hey, Dad, like, it kind of hurts when you don't show up on time. And you pursue reconciliation, and you pursue forgiveness. If you want a less toxic work environment, or a less toxic friend circle, or a less toxic family, flee from gossip. Listen, listen to this. God says, where there is no wood, a fire goes out. And where there is no gossip, contention ceases. Fire needs wood to burn. And Contention, arguments, and fighting needs gossip to survive. If you want to get rid of it, flee from gossip. Here's the application. If you've gossiped, go ask for forgiveness 
and seek reconciliation for both the people that you have talked to and the people that you've gossiped about. And honestly, that probably sounds terrifying. But I'm sure you don't want to destroy friendships. Because no one wants that, right? But that's what we have to do. We have to seek reconciliation. Next application, if someone around you gossips, just politely excuse yourself from the conversation. You can just get up and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to go do something else. Or, hey, like, I'm not comfortable talking about this. Can I go somewhere else? You don't have to call them out. You don't have to point the finger. Unless they are a follower of Jesus. And this one is the kicker. I heard this one in a talk sometime. A pastor recommended this. This one honestly sounds terrifying. If you hear a follower of Jesus gossiping, you say, hey, would you like me to tell that person that you gossiped about them and asked for their forgiveness, or would you like to do it? Because I am trying to protect you from poison and bitterness that you're spreading to me, yourself, and that other person. And that is the loving thing to do. And you don't have to say it in a way that's harsh, but you communicate it with love and you give them a timeline. Say like, hey, if you want to do it, that's great. Take three days and I'm going to follow up with you. And it really is a way to protect not just you, but also that person that's gossiping and the person that they're gossiping about and everyone else that's listening. It really is the loving thing to do, although it sounds absolutely terrifying to actually say that. But it's necessary. Like this is the level, this is how dangerous sin is. We have to fight it. So fun stuff, moving on, right? Next we've got recklessness. Um, Recklessness, I wanted to share this one because it kind of hits close to home. It's something that I have to fight oftentimes. Uh, I think on my feet, just a little bit about me, I think really well on my feet. I'm naturally very decisive. Crisis situations are like my bread and butter. I, I like to do things quickly. Uh, however, though, that leads me into recklessness a lot of times where I don't really think about what I'm going to do. Uh, this is an example of this. One time I was walking with my friends, and I see a tree branch hanging out of a tree, and I think for some reason it's a great idea to swing on this like a vine. And so I just run up and put my full body weight on this branch, and I end up flat on my back on the pavement. The branch falls out of the tree and lands right on someone's car. Right? Bad choice. Uh, contrast this, though, my recklessness with my friend Luke. You guys all know him. There's Luke and I at his wedding, uh, his and Bailey's wedding. Uh, here's a funny photo of us. I'm not entirely sure what we're doing in this photo, but it's fun. We're having a good time. Uh, so Luke, Luke is very methodical and thorough, and he takes time in making decisions. And honestly, that serves me really well as his friend because we kind of balance each other out. But the lie that I can believe with recklessness is because I am a quick thinker, I can start to rationalize my sin of recklessness by saying, hey, it's just who I am, right? Like, it's natural for me to be this way. The danger, though, is that I can say or do hurtful things quickly without thinking about it to myself or to others. And in the moment, I justify it by just saying, hey, I'm just an external processor. I just said what's on my mind. Or, hey, like, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to take the time to do it. And I never want to reason away sin by just saying it's a part of who I am. Like on the flip side, if you're more like Luke and you're a slow processor and you like to think through things, like you have to guard against indecision that comes from fear and anxiety. I have to guard against fear that comes from inaction. Everyone has to watch against that sin of fear. And we all feel it in different ways. But we never want to excuse sin as a personality trait. Like, it is okay to be quick on your feet 
And it is okay to be an external processor, just like it's okay to think through things methodically, and it is okay to think before you speak. That's actually a really good thing. But it doesn't excuse recklessness. It doesn't excuse doing whatever I want to, whenever I want to. Proverbs 13.3 says, The one who guards his words guards his life, but whoever is talkative will come to ruin. Uh, I've got this application that I heard recently that I've been trying to grow in. It's called the rule of three. Uh, someone said that three seconds is the difference between a reaction and a response. So if I think of a funny joke that's probably going to hurt someone's feelings, or I think of some sharp response that I want to give, I pause and I wait three seconds. And I think, is this a good thing to say? Is this a Christ-like thing to say? And if it's not, I don't say it. Or I try not to say it. <laughs> if I'm honest, I'm just being honest here. Or maybe I'm doing something with my friends and I'm kind of questioning, man, is this a good thing for me to do? Or is this going to lead me into sin? And I just wait three minutes before I decide to go do it. And you just think about it. Or maybe there's a, a, a bigger decision. Maybe you want to buy something, but you're concerned that you're just going to use your money on yourself. And you're trying not to be greedy. Take three days and just think about it before you buy it. Maybe you're processing a big decision. Like you're thinking about, do I want to date this person or not? Take a couple weeks. Take three weeks. Just think on it. Because you don't want to rush into sin. And I'm not saying three is an entirely an arbitrary number, just so you know. Like, it does not have to be three of anything. Like, that is just what has been helpful to me that I like to think through. The other application is just getting God's word, honestly. Like, the more that I have found that I intake God's word, that is what comes out when I speak. Because the more that I'm walking deeply with Jesus, the more that that's just what I want to talk about. Because it's, it's the best thing that I know. And so that's what I want to say. And so, so one, rule of three, really helpful to get in God's word. Next, the second to the last deadly sin is the love of money. Now the definition of the love of money is making the pursuit of money or more money more important than everything else. The lie is here that more money will meet all my needs and make me happy. And this one kind of makes sense, right? It's like, man, if I do have all the money that I need, I'll get what I want, and that probably will make me happy. Y'all, but Paul is warning Timothy about this one because he's a young leader in the church. Leaders in that day, whether they were the Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees, maybe they were Roman or Greek leaders, they were all very, very financially focused. Like, that was kind of their goal, is that they wanted to be rich and powerful. And so the temptation for Timothy is, hey, I'm going to use this power to be able to use my position to gain money. And that's what I should do. But there's a danger here. And, y'all, the danger is that more money does not equal more happiness. And, in fact, it actually can lead to more stress. There was a study that Harvard, get this, in 2010, they showed that when someone made more than $75,000 a year, they didn't get any happier. And a lot of times, they just started to get more stressed. Jesus says it like this. Watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You know, life is not about just getting more stuff. A new guitar or new golf clubs are not going to make you more happy. They might for a moment, but that's not where the fullness of life is found. It's just like sin. It's fleeting. It goes away quickly. It's a lie. And hey, I am not saying you have to be poor, right? Like that's not what we're saying here. But there is a second danger here that Jesus says. He says that no one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is a very sobering warning that the danger is that the love of money will cause you to hate God. And it sounds harsh, and it sounds black and white, but those are Jesus' words himself. And again, the application here is not to be poor, right? But you want to seek to just have enough. Not too much. You don't want to be rich. You don't want to be poor, but you want to have enough to live and enjoy your life. And some practicals, though, that you can do, that we can say, is that you want to give generously. Like, I don't know what the number is that you need to live. That is between you and God. But I can say all of us need to be giving generously. There are a lot of phenomenal nonprofits that do a lot of really good work that I could personally recommend giving to that really are phenomenal. If you belong to a local church, give to that local church. And I am not saying give blindly. Like, follow up with that organization. Follow up with that church. Find out what they do with their money. It's not like you just have to toss your money away. But you want to be generous, and you want to give it to other people who are going to use it for good. Second one, and this one always gets me. I had a friend who looked over at me. I was very young into following Christ. And he said, Nick, did you know that the Bible says to buy your friends? No, it doesn't. He's like, yeah, Jesus said it. And I was like, it does not say that. Jesus never said that. In Luke 16, 9, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by how you use your worldly wealth. So that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. What Jesus is saying here is use your money to make friends that will last for eternity. He's not saying buy the kind of friends that are going to leave just because they like your stuff. He's saying use friends to make friends with other believers who are going to be with you in heaven forever. Or use your friends to tell people about, or use your money to tell people about Jesus. Did I say use your friends? Don't do that. That's, that's bad. <laughs> that's real bad. The love of money is a lie. It just is. Sin is a lie and it's dangerous. And I think we can kind of see how it starts, right? Like you start when someone wrongs you and you get bitter and so you choose not to forgive them. And so then because you're hurt, you start to gossip and you spread around more hurt and bitterness and poison. And that causes division and it separates you from your close friends. And then you start to rationalize it by just saying, man, it's just who I am. I'm just difficult to get along with. And then it continues, and because you have to look out for yourself, you start trying to get more money to buy yourself more things so that you can take care of yourself because you're pushing everyone else away. And the whole time, sin is hardening your heart and tricking you into thinking that you're living your best life because it tastes good in the moment. And that moves us on to the biggest lie of them all, and that's the lie of self-love. Y'all, self-love is defined as placing yourself as the center and highest priority in your life. And a quick disclaimer, though, I am not talking about getting enough sleep or eating good food or working out or spending time with people that care about you. Those are good things. Go do them. God encourages those things. I would call that taking care of yourself, not self-love. But the lie of self-love, y'all, is that no one cares for me more than me. Or no one knows how to love me better than me. And on the surface, it really does make sense, right? Because I know myself better than everyone else. Or at least I think I do. And so I start to treat myself first. I'm going to put myself first. And I start to ignore responsibilities that I've committed to because, man, I just need some me time. 
Or maybe it looks like you don't want to help other people because that would just kind of stress me out too much and I can't really deal with that. And you start to believe that I know what's best and you start to think, man, if everyone just kind of thought my way, the world would be so much better. And slowly, subtly, everything in your life starts to revolve around you. And we become the center of our own world. And the lie here, the deeper lie, is that I can fill the role of God in my own life. That is the lie that self-love sells. And we might not say it out loud to ourselves. We're probably not saying, man, I can be my own God. But we start to think, man, like, we, I hear this so often, I need to learn to love myself. Or I need to learn to forgive myself. And we start to become incredibly self-reliant. And we just think, man, I will meet all my own needs. I'll do it for me. And, y'all, this is not just the message of today. This is not just the message of Paul and Timothy's day. This is the oldest lie in the book. Because this was Satan's original lie. is that you know better than God. So do what you want. And y'all, the danger of this one, and it is so deeply hidden, is that we make terrible gods. We really do. Because deep down, I think we all know that we're just not good enough. Like, I can't forgive myself because so often I'm my own worst enemy. And the person who causes more pain and frustration in my life is mostly me. And so I can't forgive myself and I can't love myself because oftentimes I'm the one shooting myself in the foot. And we might cover it up with bravado or anger towards other people or self-righteousness, but at the end of the day, I know that I'm going to fail, and I can't fill that void in the center of my life that I feel. And whenever I feel empty, I think, man, if I could just do something else to fix myself. But I think we all know, man, I just can't do it. Because we know that we're going to fail. And if you put something imperfect there, you know that it's going to be let down one day. Jesus says this, that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. And y'all, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, is that he came and sacrificed his life for you. And he loves you, and he forgives you. And so if God, who is perfect, who has never done anything wrong, if he can't fail you, and if he loves you and he forgives you, I promise you that is all you need. You only need God to love you. Because who cares what I do if I have a perfect, loving God who is the source of all good, who has loved me and forgiven me? I don't need to love myself. I don't need to forgive myself. And that empowers me to go out and love other people and forgive other people. But first, y'all, just listen to what God says about his followers. It says Romans 5.8. Well, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that while you were enemies of God, Christ died for you. If you are still an enemy of God, Christ died for you. I'm never going to be able to do that on my worst day, on my best day. But God goes further. He didn't just die for us. It says in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. That is how God looks at people. He shouts for joy over them. He takes great delight. Y'all, the application here is just love God and love others above yourself because God loves us. 
Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Put other people's interests above your own. Serve God. It really is the best life. And, and Paul continues here. He says that they will maintain the outward appearance of religion, talking about everyone who's living in all these ways he's mentioned before. But he says they will have denied its power. Yo, people will play the religion game, whether it's nominal Christianity or religion of self or whatever else people are playing in the world, but they deny its power. And do you know what the power of God is? It's God's love for you. That is the power of God. That he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and that he was raised to new life so that you could have a loving relationship with him as your father and your God and as a free gift of love. And that is the thing that transforms lives. It's not trying to be a better person. It is not trying to clean up your own life. And then I think that question begs to ask itself, though, is like, man, if we have this love from God available, why would I ever choose sin? Because it just kind of seems foolish, right? Between these two. Paul says in verse 9, he even says, he says, they will not go much further, for their foolishness will be obvious to everyone. I want to tell you guys about a story real quick, though. There's a man living in New York. This is a true story. You can read about it. And he was kind of eccentric, and his neighbors started to notice some very strange things that were happening. Like, there was really bad smells of urine, and, like, there was strange noises coming from his apartment, like weird growls and, like, just, like, really guttural noises. And they're like, what is going on in there? And people kind of complained to themselves, but they never really did anything about it. Until finally, this guy, he goes into the hospital with just a massive laceration on his leg and he tells the doctors it's a rottweiler and the doctors see it and there's like there is no dog alive that can do that to a person and so they call the police and the police go to the judge and they get a a uh, permit not a permit thank you they get a warrant and they go to this man's house because they're thinking maybe he's in some kind of secret fight club like i don't know what's what's going on with this guy and they put a, a snake under the door a camera snake and when it turns the corner, on the screen, there is a 425-pound Siberian Bengal tiger living in this man's apartment. They had to call the SWAT team to rappel down the side of the building and go in through a window with tranquilizer guns just to get this thing out to the zoo. And not only that, they found out that this guy had had bear cubs, uh, hyenas, a five-foot-long crocodile, and even a young lion living in this man's apartment throughout the years. And when they asked about it, the, the man said, this is his words. He said, I got it when it was small and it was cute. And I never really thought about how big it would get. And we look at that and we think, man, that is so foolish. Like that tiger could have killed you, man. But sin is the exact same way. It will grow and grow. And it's kind of cute when it's small. And it's kind of fun. But it festers in our heart if we don't do anything about it. And it will hurt and it will cause death because it's a predator crouching at the door, just like a tiger. So then the question is, how does Paul tell Timothy to fight sin? If we want to fight the sin, how do we do that? First of all, if you are a believer, this is how. You get in community. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11, You, however, have followed my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, as well as the persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra. 
Paul is saying here, Timothy, you have spent so much time with me. And Paul and Timothy had spent so much time together that they sharpened each other. And they could call out sin in each other's lives and help each other grow and fight sin. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another each day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deception. Because, guys, sin is deceitful. I, uh, I actually have some guava juice right here. It's called guava goddess. kind of hate that, but uh, I'm actually really thirsty. I really am. And uh, you know what? If, if no one says anything, I'm just going to drink this in three seconds. Okay. That is exactly it, guys. That is exactly it. I'm serious. It's funny. This is actually not guava juice. If no one stopped me, this is strawberry kombucha. I was not going to poison myself. Um, I'm not that foolish. <laughs> but, y'all, that is exactly it. You don't care about how awkward it is. You don't care about how bold you have to be. You see someone that's moving in a direction that's not beneficial for them, and you say, hey, that's not a good thing for you, so please stop. Actually, I am thirsty. I promise it's strawberry juice. (laughs) We have to be around people, honestly, that will call us out. I need this every single day of my life. I need to be around brothers and sisters in Christ who will lovingly point out my sin and say, Nick, don't. We all need that every single day. And, and when you see someone living in sin, the Bible says, correct them gently. Don't get angry. Don't say, hey, that's so like you. What are you doing? You're an idiot. You're a moron. No one says, hey, you're choosing something that's worse than Christ. You don't have to do that. Choose something else. And then you just pray that they listen. Second, first, you get in community. Second, you get in God's word. Paul says in verse 13 of 2 Timothy 3 that evil people and charlatans will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. Like Jack talked about last week, we have to know the truth. We have to follow the truth and we have to share the truth because lies are are being spread. Paul continues and says, You, however, must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What do you do? You get in community and you get in God's word. And if you are a believer in Jesus, that is how you fight sin. And honestly, for a long time in following Jesus, I've kind of imagined, like, I'm going to outgrow sin. Like, I'm going to outgrow all these sin areas. And what I've come to realize is it's more just like a path And at any point, I can stray off in any number of directions because sin is deceptive. And it looks good. And there's a lot of different things that are drawing for my attention. And so I need the guidelines of God's word and other believers that are going to keep me in the life that Jesus has promised. It is not about outgrowing sin. It is about daily making the decision to follow Jesus and ask him to give you the power to continue to walk on that path. If you are a believer in Jesus, get in community that know you, that will lovingly call you out and get in God's word and allow it to lovingly reflect your sin to you so you can change. The question is, though, how do I fight sin if I'm not a follower of Jesus? And the answer is that you can't. And how do I know that? It's because I had tried for 18 years. I really did, y'all. I tried for 18 years to be forgiving by myself. 
I tried for 18 years to be selfless. I tried for 18 years to try not to love money or to try to not be reckless or to try to just clean up my own life. But every single time I tried, and because I I felt the consequences of these things. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm sure you have too. That there's the times where you just experience something, you're like, man, I messed up. But if you're like me, you just you keep going back to it because it just tastes good. And you just want it. And so you just think, man, I'm just going to keep going back to it because I can't really change and I can't really clean up your, my own life. And maybe God has brought something to your mind tonight and all the sin that you've chosen and you look at it and you kind of feel empty and you kind of feel ashamed and you kind of feel foolish because you're like, that's exactly me. And I want you to know that I have been right there with you But God does not want you to stay there. See, God wants to deliver you from your sin and to clean you and to help you to be live life to the full and to take away your shame and to train you to follow him through the power of his love. And I know that because that is the only reason that I am here today. That is the only reason why anyone is a follower of Jesus. Y'all, the power of the gospel is not that good people or religious people tell sinners how to change their lives. The power of the gospel is that I can say as one sinner to someone else, there is freedom in Jesus Christ. And that if you just turn and trust in following him, and you decide, I don't want to run my life anymore, but God, I want you to run my life. There's freedom and forgiveness and healing. And you can have that tonight. If you want it, it is a free gift. And I promise you, Jesus will not let you down. And it will be so much better than any of the lies that sin will try to sell you. And there will not be the negative consequences. There won't be the late nights of regret. There won't be the tears in the shower. There won't be the painful conversations with friends. I'm not saying following Jesus will make it better or you'll become perfect. It will actually probably get harder in other ways. But I am telling you, you won't give in as much to sin's lies and deceptiveness because you'll have an ability to fight because that only comes through Jesus. And y'all, there's a reality that there is a bigger consequence than the, lives that are ha- or than the lies that happen in this life. And that is one day all of us will have to pay for our sin if we are not followers of Jesus. And the Bible says you can pay for it or he can pay for it. And those are the only two options. And paying for it yourself means going to an eternity in hell separated from God and experiencing no good for the rest of forever. Or you can follow Jesus and experience life to the full for the rest of time. And the choice really is yours. And I would beg you, make the decision to follow Jesus. Do not wait on that. You don't know how much time you have. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna have some discussion questions. God, I just, I, I love you and I'm so grateful for you. God, I, I thank you for the warning that your sin, or that your, your word brings us about sin. God, I, just, I pray That if there's anyone in here who has not made the decision to follow you, God, I pray that they would realize the ways that they're living and the lies that they're believing, God, and you would open their eyes to that and that they would find freedom and forgiveness and healing in you. And God, I pray for the rest of us that just like Paul was telling Timothy, God, that if we are followers of Christ, that we would live differently. God, and that our lives would change because you have cleansed us of our sin and you have made us into new creations that we don't have to put on the old dirty laundry anymore or continue to buy sin's lies. God, help us to continue to get into community. God, help us to go to your word. 
And God, help us just to see that you want what's best for us. And that at the end of the day, God, only you can fill the void in our life. Only you can fill the emptiness because you are the only one who's good enough and who's perfect and who loves us in the way that we need it. And God, I'm so grateful for you. And I pray all these things through Jesus' name. Amen.